good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, particularly verse 17. Uh, I want to kind of give you the outlay of what I want to do this morning because I really feel like I have two tasks. Um, The first task is to do an exposition of this particular uh, verse of Scripture, which is vitally important not only to our understanding of the book of Jonah, but also to our understanding of the gospel. But not only do I want us to look at this particular text and to understand it and to understand it rightly, I also want to give us uh, hopefully a a way that we can reform the way we read the Old Testament. Um, When we come to the Old Testament and we look through the pages of Scripture, you know that as we do that here, we always want to see and to behold Jesus in the Old Testament because we are convinced, according to Jesus' own words, that every dot and tittle is about Him. That there is not a single page of Scripture that is not testifying to the finished work of Christ that is not making him known to us so that we can behold him and love him and to hold him more dearly than we did before. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage and I want to read this and I want to study this passage the way that Jesus would have. I want to have the same hermeneutic, that's how we study the Bible, that Jesus had. I don't want to fabricate it myself. I don't want to look at modern scholars and say, this is how we read the scriptures. I want to look to my Lord who has taught me how to read the pages of scripture. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah chapter one, starting in verse 17. We'll make our way actually through verse 10 of chapter two. And the word of the Lord says this, and I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jonah chapter one, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head. At the root of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may that always be our echo. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Lord, may that not cause trembling in us as if you will be unjust with it. But Lord, may we rejoice that you who are the one who will always do what is right, the king of heaven, the the one who possesses perfect righteousness and judgment, it is you who owns salvation. So Father, even as we come to examine this moment in this prophet's life, may we see and behold the one who truly did bring salvation to us all. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So walking through this book, we have really been following a trajectory of Jonah. And, and really what I want to do the first time we work through this section is I want us to understand what, what is it? What's the historical grammatical context? Meaning as we look at this story, as we look at this particular text, what is this text saying? For the Jew who reads it for the first time as he's reading through the book of Jonah before the incarnation, before Christ comes, he's reading through this, what is he going to see? And I do think there really were two ways that people would have seen the book of Jonah as they were reading it. For those who, by the Spirit, were illuminated and were looking forward to Christ, they would see and taste that there is one coming who is a better prophet than Jonah. But for others, there are actually things that we can look at and understand from this particular section about who the person of God is, how he is faithful, how he appoints all things. And so I want to walk us through kind of the, the background of leading us to this point. Well, the, at the very beginning of the story, we see that the Lord appoints a prophet for Nineveh. As he appoints this prophet, he calls out Jonah. He says, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Immediately, Jonah's reaction is to flee from the presence of the Lord because he does not believe that Nineveh has any right to God's mercy. He doesn't believe that Nineveh has any claim on the God of the Hebrews expressing any kindness, any love, any mercy or grace toward them at all. And so immediately what he does is flee from the presence of the Lord. And at the very first uh, examination of this text, we discuss the descent of Jonah. This morning, we get to see the bottom of that descent. We see him as these introduced flee from the presence of the Lord. We see him go down to Joppa to find a boat to flee from the presence of the Lord. We see him go down into the boat to flee from the presence of the Lord. We see him go down even further into the belly of the boat and ultimately into a deep sleep. His whole intention is I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I am descending all the more into disobedience to get away from the God who I say that I fear. And then we see it just go a bit deeper. In the previous section, we saw that he is thrown into the sea. And we read through this story of Jonah and we even picture this concept of Jonah being t picked up and the language here is hurled into the sea. And for some reason, we think that, okay, immediately as he hits the water, he will be swallowed up by this fish and preserved. By Jonah's own assessment in this particular prayer, that is, prayer, that is not the case. It seems as though actually as you do an examination of the prayer that Jonah's descent is not only into the sea and then ultimately into the fish, but it seems as though Jonah actually descends into death. Now, that may rub you the wrong way because we always think about God preserving the life of Jonah in the fish. But when we see the psalm here laid out and we also see what we'll, what we'll read in Matthew chapter 12, it seems as though the finality of Jonah's descent is not just into the sea or into the belly of a fish, but it seems as though he genuinely does draw his last breath here. He dies. His descent is one that ends in Sheol. I would like to just point out a couple of verses, a couple of moments from this prayer. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I cried to you out of the belly of Sheol. Jonah's descent ends in death. It is not just an act of preservation that we see God do in the fish, though certainly it is a preservation of his flesh. But what we see is Jonah genuinely descend to the lowest regions of the earth. It is not just that he has ceased to breathe. He is in Sheol. He has died. And the reason this is so vitally important for us to understand is because this is the way that Jesus understood this story. When we look at this particular text, we see Jonah descend into death. 
And doesn't it make sense that even as you read this, we read this story and we instantly go to the solution. We instantly go to the end of the story. But as we read verse 17, it really does seem as though it's the finality, almost the end of Jonah's mission altogether. I mean, notice what verse 17 says. It almost seems as though it, were in, it was an excellent end to the story of Jonah altogether. Because friends, a prophet who flees from the Lord like this deserves only God's condemnation. Not only has he tasted and seen that the Lord is good, he's seen and knows the mission of God before him, and he flees from it to the nth degree, even unto death. And what is it? How should this story genuinely end? It should end in verse 17 when it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. End. Jonah has been thrown into the sea. Jonah is drowning. And all of a sudden, God sends a fish to swallow him up. I can think of no greater descent. He dies. And it seems as though, rightly, we should say, thus was the story of Jonah. He's dead. He's gone. Now, there are a couple of things that I want to consider before we continue in this. But I do think we do well to pause in the tension of the reality that Jonah, for all intents and purposes, if you do not have the next phrase, is gone altogether. So let's just see a couple of things that we see unfold from the Lord amidst this time. First and foremost, I want us to see and to hold on to the understanding that God has genuinely orchestrated every single moment of this story. I mean, from the very beginning of this, he appoints a prophet. That's the very first thing that we see in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God appoints a specific prophet to go to the people of Nineveh, a people who are, in essence, unworthy altogether of God's mercy and grace, just as the Hebrews were, I would mind you. And he says, no, I refuse but then we see this really interesting trajectory occur because there's this word appointed that, refer, that comes about four or five times in the book of Jonah. And it's interesting that every time the Lord appoints something, the thing appointed does exactly what the Lord commands it to do. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The only lip we see given back to God is through the prophet Jonah. God appoints a fish. The fish comes and does exactly as God commanded the fish to do. We even see before the fish, we see God hurl a hurricane essentially at Jonah. And the hurricane does exactly what God commanded the hurricane to do. Not only do we see that he appoints a fish for the purpose of, we'll see later on, preserving the flesh of Jonah. But we also see that later on in the story, he appoints a plant to shield, just to guard, just to give a little bit of extra mercy and grace to Jonah, to cover him, to give him a bit of reprieve from the blazing sun of Nineveh. And the plant does exactly what God has called it to do. It's obedient. And then we see shortly after that, a worm come that God has appointed and that worm comes and crushes and destroys the plant. Now, what's most interesting is it seems like, okay, the plant's done, it's, it's still hot in Nineveh, but God also then appoints a scorching wind to come and blaze across the face of Jonah that he can feel its heat. God has appointed every moment of this story. There is not one thing that is out of place by God's providence. And friends, you've heard us speak regularly of God's providence lately. And the primary way that we've discussed God's providence is our understanding of it and how we respond to it. But I do want us to understand for just a moment, when we speak of God's providence, we are not just speaking of our response to it, we are speaking of its reality. When we say that God has providentially caused something to occur, it means that He is sovereign over whatever that thing is. I would actually go to the extent of saying all things that are under His control, which is everything, both things that are and are not. Everything that he has appointed, everything that occurs is by his divine appointment. It is by his providence. 
And so we see his sovereignty expressed. We see quite clearly that God is the orchestrator of everything that unfolds in the book of Jonah. And we must also say, not only in the book of Jonah, but also in our individual lives and in all of the world. Everything that occurs, occurs under God's sovereign providential hand. It's vitally important that we understand that so that we can live rightly in his world. Because if we don't grasp these realities, then we will not live rightly under his authority. But I want you to notice the precision of this providence. I mean, consider for just a moment, each of these things are so minuscule, it seems. God appoints a worm. Why would God appoint a worm? Why is it that the fish is exactly where it needs to be to swallow up Jonah to fulfill the mission that God has for it? Friends, it's because there genuinely are no rogue agents. And I'm convinced that we still hold on to this idea that there are things that occur outside of God's appointment. Can we please just put all of those things to death? When we look at the sea, the sea is still one of those places that we look and we see chaos. It is out of our control. It is a place that we dare not dread for long. And yet God is absolutely sovereign and supreme over it. We have no control of the elements. We have no control of the livestock around us. And yet God does perfectly. There is nothing outside of his sovereign care and his providence. And anything that comes our way, we should be gladly embracing it as from the good hand of God. And so as we see this, we see that he is certainly precise. But I do want us to notice one other thing. Because as we walk through the narrative of Jonah, it seems as though every children's book always has, I hate children's Bible stories, um, Every single one of them has Jonah seeking to the bottom of the ocean and then he prays and then God sends the fish to swallow him up. That is not what happens in the narrative. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew language is so explicit to say it happens this way in this particular order. Friends, God sent that fish before Jonah could pray for it. Jonah was drowning at the bottom of the ocean. I am convinced already dead. And God swallows him up for an intended end, for a blessed purpose that we will see a bit later. But notice this, it is God who saves, even in this moment, even in this small, minuscule point, it seems, of Jonah, he is shouting one great reality. It is God who saves. He does it. He alone. And should we understand this rightly, we must even then, in the midst of this story, see ourselves as those who cannot breathe, those who cannot even utter a phrase, those who are dead, and yet by his grace, swallowed up. And we'll see what we are swallowed up in a bit later. But we see his providence, we see his care, we see his grace that is unprovoked. It is provoked only by his will. And he gives it as he wills. But then we see a bit further, and this is where the story really does seem to build that suspense. He's swallowed up. Gone. Should they have sent a party to search for Jonah, they would find nothing. He was gone altogether, swallowed up by this fish. There was no hope for him. Friends, I can think of no place that is more final than being swallowed up in a fish waiting to be digested. And so the story continues. We must ask the question, what is, what is God doing by preserving Jonah? Why, why is he keeping him? And I'm convinced keeping his body specifically. He's keeping him because God has an intended end for Jonah. Friends, we see this in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. This was not a commission that was going to be given to another, nor was this a commission that would not be fulfilled. 
Why does God preserve the body of Jonah? Why does he keep him? He keeps him ultimately because God had an intended end and that intended end would come about. It would. It was not up for negotiation. And what's interesting, I always hear people say, if you don't do it, God will send another. It does not seem like that is the case with Jonah. It seems as though God has dictated to Jonah, you will go to Nineveh. You have a mission that will be fulfilled. And that mission that will be fulfilled will be done through you. There are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It will be accomplished. And so we see in his providence all of these things unfolding. And so if I just wanted to ask a simple question of what, to what end is all, are all of these things unfolding? What should we take away from the story of Jonah? And I think there are some really clear and right applications of this. The first, I think we could say, it is, it, is, it is God making his power known. Friends, you can't read through the book of Jonah and think he is not the God of the sea and the dry land. As a matter of fact, it seems as though in every appointment that he makes, he is dictating, I am the God of the sea and the dry land. I am the God who is sovereign over absolutely everything. He is demonstrating clearly that he is the same God who delivered the Hebrews from Egypt. He is the same God who has appointed the conquering of Canaan and empowered it to actually come to fruition. He is the sovereign one over all things. And his missions will not be thwarted. They will be accomplished. Now, it's interesting because not only do we see that it's God making his power known, but it also does seem that the purpose of the author is not just to indicate God's sovereignty, but it's also to indicate that he is one who possesses certain attributes. And he does this refrain in chapter 4, looking back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And to that we say yes and amen. The purpose of the author here certainly is to indicate God's sovereignty over all things and also to demonstrate who this God is. But there is another point that we must understand. Not only is it to reveal his sovereignty, to reveal his attributes, it is also as a means of missiology even. We go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we have already heard. Friends, salvation belongs to God and he distributes it to who he wills. And by his good grace, he has distributed not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And not only are those Jews and Gentiles then ransomed and redeemed, but they are made into a particular people. There's great missiology for us to understand here. And those are all excellent applications. Yes, praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his attributes, for his mercy and grace that abound in ways that we will never fathom. Praise God that he has ransomed to himself members of every tribe, tongue, and nation. In this we rejoice. Even looking out, we see that clearly demonstrated in every local church. But that's not the point of Jonah. If we read this story the way that Jesus read this story, there is a greater end. It's not just his demonstration of sovereignty. It's not just his demonstration of mercy that knows no ethnic bonds. It is a story of the one who will come that is infinitely better than Jonah. Now, if we are to read this story the way that Jesus read this story, certainly I would imagine that as Jesus is sitting down and reading the book of Jonah, he would see all of these things, knowing rightly who his God was, who his father was. But it seems as though when he is given a charge, essentially give a brief exposition of some of the things that are happening around us, what sign do you want? He gives us, by God's grace, an exposition of the book of Jonah. It's brief but it's rich. Matthew chapter 12, as we heard earlier this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 and 41. How is it that Jesus understood Jonah? What did Jesus see as he was approaching this book? 
Listen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus saw himself. When he read, when he studied the book of Jonah, as he read through, as he saw Jonah descend into death, as he saw him be swallowed up in the belly of the fish, Jesus saw himself. How did he see himself? As he reads the story, he saw his own death, burial, and resurrection. He saw his own mission accomplished. He saw his own ransom of saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He saw the mercy of God clearly displayed. Just, let's just do a brief examination of Jesus' own words. For just as, that just as is vitally important. You wonder perhaps why it is that I am standing up here and being so incredibly dogmatic about the fact that Jonah was dead in the fish because the language here is a direct contrast in comparison. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Was Jesus swooning? Was he tired? Was he passed out in the tomb? Was God just preserving him, giving a little breath here and there? All of us would say resounding no, for if that be the case, then we are all dead in our sin. But here we see Jesus say, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he considers this particular sign, this sign of Jonah, so incredibly clear and dogmatic. He looks at it and he says, this is the clearest sign you will ever receive. To the point where he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The ones who Jonah went and preached to, the ones whom God sent Jonah to proclaim judgment, those men will rise up and declare judgment on all the people who saw the true sign of Jonah and the finished work of Christ. Why? Because something better than Jonah has come. Notice what this scripture says. Jesus, in his examination, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. These men repented at the preaching of a prophet. And the Son of God stands among us, stands among the Pharisees, and he is proclaiming, teaching with excellencies in ways that no one has ever heard. He is going to die and raise from the dead, and still they will say, I am waiting for the Messiah. It is no surprise that Nineveh will rise up and judge them. Friends, for just a moment, let me make an application. We have greater revelation today. In the pages of Scripture, Peter says that certainly you have the inspired words of Scripture. You have my testimony as Peter. And he says the, the word that is even more sure is the word that each and every one of us have in our hands today or also when you sit down and you study the pages of Scripture in your own home. God has been clear in his testifying. We see certainly the sign of Jonah in Christ and even today we are benefactors of that sign. And so how then should we understand this a bit further? Because I'm convinced if we want to understand the book of Jonah, if we want to understand the complete story of Jonah and even then Nahum as well, how do we understand this moment? The major theme of this book is mercy through judgment. Where is the greatest demonstration of that ever to be had? It's not in the book of Jonah. It's not in Exodus. It's not in Noah's Ark. It is in the finished work of Christ, the one who absorbed the judgment of God on our behalf. Notice what Luke chapter 23, verse 44 through 49 says. Because we will see just as Jonah was swallowed up by this great fish, we see our Lord swallowed up by death. Hear this, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You know, we read past the death of our Lord. We always do. We read past this moment because we're always looking to the subsequent resurrection. And rightly so, as Christians, that is the hope that we have. But we never sit here in the tension of the fact that in this particular moment, our Lord is dead. And he is not dead just by some act of violence from wicked men. I want you to notice just the introduction of verse, 20, of verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What is that darkness? Last week we spoke of expiation and we spoke of expiation ultimately through propitiation. Let me define those words. Expiation, the carrying away of our sin. We see Jonah as some type of shadow in that. When he is thrown into the sea, the mariners are all of a sudden safe because that which was the object of God's wrath is no longer present. But that's really not a true form of expiation for they are still sinners. But we see in Christ one who is not just one who removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Certainly that is the case, but he does it through absorbing it. He has absorbed it in totality. There is no longer any darkness to come upon us. Even in this verse, we see it was six hours, these hours of darkness that were the wrath of God displayed. Jesus is our expiation. He is the one who carries away the, sin, the wrath that is due us by carrying away the object of God's wrath, our sin. He is our wrath bearer. He is our sin bearer. And he has indeed carried them as far as the east is from the west. And how is this clearly indicated in the text? He dies. He dies. When we say the word propitiation, we are speaking of the most horrendous death that has ever been died. You are speaking of not only a death for one, but a death for a multitude without number. And not just the ceasing of breathing, but of the wrath of God that does rest on every human that has trespassed his law, which is all of us. And he is dead. When we come to this text, 1 Corinthians 15 always comes to mind whenever I think about, let's just simply understand the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, because I want you to see what the apostles saw as they were watching this unfold. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 at this point could be read like this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and that he was buried. Because as we read the book of Jonah, we see that there's this moment where he is just dead, buried. In this particular case, friends, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has indeed been swallowed up by death. But we know that that is not the end of the story because it seems as though that as Jesus is swallowed up by death, we also see death swallowed up by him. That he has conquered it all together. Let's just read Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. And this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the coverings that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. 
When we see Jonah swallowed up by the great fish, we see, even in that story, if we desire to see it as Christ saw it, we see our Lord swallowed up by death. But friends, the beauty of this story is we know the conclusion. The conclusion of this story is not only was Jesus swallowed up by death, but in Jesus' death, he swallows up death forever for those who were his. Just as Jonah had a mission that would be accomplished, even amidst Jonah's disobedience, we see Christ perfectly obedient in every single minor detail. Not even his life could be given up without his own will. We see quite clearly in John 10, no one takes his life from him. Jonah unwillingly gave his life. Jesus, in his infinite grace and love, gave his life for a people who were unworthy and ransomed them to himself forevermore. When we look and behold the story of Jonah, we do not look and behold the story of a great fish nor a man who died that was eventually spit out. We read the story of death conquered, of Christ victorious, and not only of those two realities, but of the joy of the fact that all of those who are in Christ have been swallowed up in him as well. The beauty of passages like Revelation, uh, Romans 4 and understanding rightly the doctrine of federal headship is I can look to Jesus and I can say, I died there. Romans chapter 6 says, For if you had died with him, you will also be raised with him. When I see the death of my Lord, when I see that he absorbed the wrath of God, I can look there and see there the wrath that was due me was satisfied. And I have died with him. I have been buried with him in baptism. And I will ultimately be raised with him forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing that we have been given eyes to see. Lord, not just eyes to see in a way that lets us read the pages of Scripture in a way that is intellectual or scholarly, but we come reading the pages of Scripture, certainly with scholarship, with wanting to understand it and understand it rightly, but we come with eyes that are given by the Spirit and by the Spirit alone. alone. We don't see blind words. We don't see simple prophecies. We see Christ and Him crucified. We see grace brought to bear. We see salvation provided. We see joy given. We see peace brought. We see our souls enriched by Christ's sacrifice. And so, Father, I ask you, first, if there be any here who are, who are dead, that do not know you, that have never seen the loveliness of Christ and come running to embrace him as Lord God and King, would you express great, great grace to them? Give them eyes to behold Jesus. Bring about repentance and faith in them. And Lord, for the saints who are here, who have seen you, who know you, have tasted that you are good, Lord, may we savor all the more deeply the wonders of the cross. May we savor all the more deeply the beauties of Jesus. May we say with the psalmist, Lord, everything is vanity except for Christ. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.